Chapter Three of Laughter Limited. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mariana Montalvo. Laughter Limited by Nina Wilcox Putnam. Chapter Three. Ain't it funny how a person you have known all your life can tell you a thing again and again, and you don't believe them, and then all of a sudden some perfect stranger blows in and pulls the same line, and you take their word for it without even swallowing twice? That's the way I was with Bert and Stricky. Dear old Bert. He was kind of lonesome in our town. I guess on account of having too much artistic temperament to get along with the other inhabitants, yet not enough to get out and show them. So he picked on me as a method of self-expression, and had me all dated to do the things he'd always wanted to. I liked his believing in me. He was the only one in town that did, but I didn't believe he knew. And now the very snappiest, worldliest man that had ever shown around our parts came along and backed him up. Well, when Stricky's fashionably shod footsteps had died away, I took the lamp and started for my room, walking easy so as not to wake up Pop. Of course we had just the basement of the house, but those four rooms was the only home I could remember, Pop having got the job of looking after the place when Mom died, and a lucky thing for us that Milton Sherrill decided to keep the house from sentiment, even though the family was all dead but him, and he lived out in California himself, only coming east once in a great while. Pop had accepted this caretaking job because it was easier than earning rent money. Mr. Sherrill didn't pay Pop for looking after things, but rent-free is rent-free, and Pop, I suppose, did the work until I was big enough to, though I can hardly remember such a time. I couldn't have been more than seven years old the first day I cleaned the brass on the front door of my own accord, inspired by Milton Sherrill's photograph, which I had swiped out of the parlor upstairs and put on my bureau. The owner had an awful nice face, and had been about twenty years old when Bert made this cabinet photo of him. I used to think Milton smiled appreciatively whenever I took special care of his dead mother's things. Anyways, I kidded myself along like that, making a regular hero out of him and doing more than I really needed to. Well, my bedroom was what had been the servants' dining room in the old days, and this night I crept across the kitchen to it without disturbing anybody but a few mice in the wall, and set the lamp down on the dresser in front of Milton Sherrill's faded old photo, which I still kept there. But I hardly noticed it. All it meant to me just then was that it stood guard to my amateur but absolutely secret safe-deposit vault. Large as it was, I wanted to reassure myself with the flash, at what I had parked away in the little drawer against which Milton was leaning so smilingly. So I flecked him aside, and digging under my pair of white gloves and my two veils, my sample of French perfume and my real lace handkerchief, took out my savings bank book, opened it, made sure the last total really said four hundred berries, gave the blessed numerals a hearty good-night kiss, and stuck the stuff all back where it belonged. I didn't pull off a great deal of sleep, however, but lay a long time staring at the bars of light the street lamp threw on the ceiling, acting out all kinds of scenes in my mind, where I turned down leading producers, refused to marry millionaires, and had my maid cleaning my jewels, and so forth. Incidentally, I sure hated myself for having saved every cent that had come my way for the last four years 
because as far as I had heard, they weren't giving away tickets to Los Angeles that season. Sweet Daddy, some dreams I had. And then, the first thing I knew, I was sitting up in bed, realizing that the bell I heard was not the Prince of Wales calling on the telephone, but the alarm clock remarking that the kitchen stove went out if neglected after six o'clock. I took the hint, still in the magic haze which had sprung up around me last night, and as I dressed I looked out of the barred windows at the dead grass and old leaves that Pop had for two months now been considering raking up. I shivered as I looked. The basement window brought the lawn about level with my nose, and I could smell its damp odor even through the glass. Down at the depot the 605 was whistling. Stricky would be going out on that. He'd have to if he was leaving first thing, like he'd said, for we only had one morning train out that time of year. Stricky on his way to California, where they had sun and flowers and, oh, gee, everything. The thought didn't make me sore or depressed, though. I remembered the contract that was coming to me, and deliberately switched my mind to coal scuttles and fried eggs. "'Get on the job, B. McFadden,' I told myself, sticking my curls under a winter-weight boudoir cap that I used, not to keep my brains warm, as might be supposed, but because yellow hair gets dirty so easy. Calm down now and do today's job today, and tomorrow will dope itself out.' With which words of wisdom I started fixing up the eats, and pretty soon the smell of coffee drew Pop's handsome curly head out of his room. "'Is that yourself stirring about, Bonnie dear?' he says, following his head and pulling his regular daily line. Sure, I didn't know it was this late. I meant to have a scuttle of coal up for you this morning. Thanks, Pop, I said. Come on and eat now. The train is in and the papers will be over to the store soon. We don't want them to be late getting around again. Sure, and I'm on me way, says Pop, languidly dropping into his place and settling down for a comfortably chatty meal in that exasperating style of his. "'Give us some coffee, my pretty. That's the girl. "'Well, Bonnie, what on earth did you want to go and make a show out of yourself for like that last night?' "'What do you mean, Pop?' I says. "'I got a right to go out with Bert and his friend if I want to.' "'Sure, that part was all right,' he agreed, swooping down on a third egg. "'Girls should have the boys running after them. It's only nature. "'I mean all that tearing around on the stage, like you done.' That was supposed to be a movie, Pop, I says. I thought it was pretty good myself, and so did some other parties. Stuff and nonsense, says Pop. Keep your mind on your cooking, and it'll fetch you a better husband. So you don't think I got any talent, I says? No talent at all, he says cheerfully. And why would you? Not but that you're a good girl and a fine daughter to me, Bonnie. I'll say I am, I remarked with spirit. And as for acting, I guess I got as good grounds for acting as Pickford or anybody. I've got the wish to. There now, don't get excited, says Pop, reproving me with his teaspoon. Take your mind off such nonsense when there is serious matters to discuss. What now? I asked, real sharp. Have you been playing pool again? How much? No, daughter dear, says Pop, flashing that winning smile of his at me. Pop sure was a beauty, what with his six feet of height, and if a trifle too heavy now, his blond curly head and his smile, the both of which I have inherited from him, could melt the heart of a stone, or of a woman who considered he abused her, which is even more. It's not pool, Bonnie dear, he says. 
It's the mortgage on the shop itself I'm thinking of. It'll be due in another two weeks, and it's time to consider the matter of where will we get the money. Have you thought? I've thought of this, Pop, I says, and not for the first time, either, that if you was to do a little work, we wouldn't be broke all the time. Pop's face fell. He pursed his lips and shook his head sadly. I know it, Bonnie, I know it, he says. God love you. I'd like to make a lot of money and leave you live like a lady. But where can I get the chance in this forsaken town? And business all over the country is terrible. It's fierce. Why, only the other day I was reading a piece, and only the other year you were telling me you couldn't get work on account of the war, I says. And next year it'll be impossible to find a job on account of business being so good. Why don't you show a little ambition? Do you expect to catch a fortune just by sitting still and letting it mistake you for bait? Well, and what would you suggest, since you're so smart, eh? says Pop, undisturbed. Sure, I'll act on anything you say. Well, I had to think hard for a minute or two before I could answer that, because this conversation was one which we had not more than twice a month, regular, and my stock of suggestions had run kinda low. But I wouldn't let him stump me, not while there was some ideas floating around in the world free for anyone with a grain of sense to catch. I rattled the dishes in the sink, hurrying to catch up with my work, and, as usual, doing the job on hand and doing it good brought results in more than one way. Do you know Jake Johnson, that Swede that's taken up the old Benson farm, had to send all the way to New Haven for the tractor he bought? Well, what of that, says Pop. There isn't an agent on this territory, I says, and there's a chance to sell tractors here. Why don't you jump in and get the agency before the boys at the garage think of it? That's a smart idea, says Pop brightly, and the work will just suit me. I know as much about mechanics as the next feller, and I'm a fair salesman at that. All I'd have to do is talk em into buying and pocket the commission. That's it, I says, with the faint hope that always would spring up in me every time we had a conference. You could make a big success of it, Pop. We'll write to the New Haven agency tonight. We will that, says Pop. And I ought easy to sell one or two before old Bushwell comes down on us for his money. Then he shuffled off across the street to where Pike's boy with his bicycle was already waiting for the clarions, and for a while I stood there looking after Pop, half mad and half tender. The handsome lazy hulk. I'd drive him to work yet. He went into the ramshackle little old shed of a store, Pike's boy following him, and I took off my cap and wrapper, slipped into my one-piece model of black serge with the tassels that I had copied out of one of the fashion magazines we carried on our newsstand, and then I done Pop's round of the house upstairs, which I made every night and morning just to be sure everything was okay. If I do say so, that house was kept in A-1 condition. Everything had been left just like it was when old Mrs. Sherrill died, and it was furnished complete. Out of the ark, I guess, for the stuff was not real old antiques, which I like pretty well, especially the clean new ones that they make nowadays. The Sherrill furniture was mostly of a sort of mumps design, the plush being puffed way out in the wrong places, like a swelling, but intended to be like that. And the wood was mostly black walnut carved with a crochet needle by the looks of it. Flowered carpets with flowers bigger even than a Californian would claim for his native state was on the floor, and the one bathroom was done in early tintype. 
Just the same, the enormous rooms, with the heavy window curtains, the thick carpets, and the homely, expensive furniture always give me a sort of thrill when I walked through. When I was a kid, I used to think these was the most beautiful rooms in the world, but that was before Pop added country houses to the magazines on our stand. And even yet I had a sort of pleasure in the rooms, because they always seemed like they was haunted by Milton. I figured he must be a pretty nice sort of bird to keep his mother's house that way, and you could kind of feel that he thought about the place often. I remember the last time he was home, a grave, quiet sort of man, you couldn't tell how old he was, standing there and telling Pop how much he liked the way the place was looking after, and Pop swelling out his shirt and accepting all the praise. I, a kid of less than twelve years old, but the real author of all this cleanness, had hid behind the door, peeking at them and getting no more credit than a picture actor out of work. But I was trembling while I listened to the owner, talking so grave, in a deep voice like the lowest-toned bell in our chimes. I worshipped Milton Sherrill, and why not? I didn't know one thing about him. This day, though, as I straightened out the candlesticks with the glass dingle-dangles on the parlor mantel, and pulled the hand-painted window-shades down even, Mr. Sherrill seemed only a ghostly dream, and instead of him I thought of the warm, real Stricky. I held a long talk with Stricky, in my imagination, pulling all the clever gags I hadn't thought of last night while he was around, and walking with my refined debutante droop, which I had forgotten to use. And then I heard Pop yell from across the street to come and say how many coupons went with three packages of extra-cut tobacco for Mr. Schoonmacker. So I says, pardon me, Stricky, old thing. Don't forget the contract. Ta-ta! and slammed out of the house and over to the store before Pop could ruin the first sale of the morning. There isn't a child living but what has helped to raise their parents, that's a fact. But probably few have had more difficult ones than Pop. Hardly had I got over to the store than Pop discovered he had to go down street. Well, he had to, I knew that. He was obliged to go and hold up the left-hand side of the post office front door, because if he was to miss a day after all these years, very likely the building would cave in. But I didn't say anything except all right, and set to work unpacking a box of lollipops that had just come, and arranging them like a bouquet in a vase on the counter. Then all I had to do was the accounts, the cleaning up, a little stock-taking, and I was free to sit down between the airtight stove and the magazine stand, where I could toast my toes on the one and reach the other easily, with all the time in the world to read, and no interruptions except now and then a customer. When one came, I would struggle to my feet and make a big sale like a bag of tobacco or three one-cent stamps. Usually we'd done at least a dollar's worth of business before noon, but not always. And so I would sit and reach for the magazines, one after another, until what I didn't know about the real world, the world that sets the standards, wasn't worth bothering over. Ain't it remarkable the educational influences we got put up in magazine form? I never looked at the cheap fiction stuff hardly. I deliberately let it lie while I pried off a lot of culture. I knew exactly what was to be wore as quick as any New York City girl did, and how the Vanderbilts looked on the avenue, and what breed of dog was all the rage. I was familiar with the appearance of the special booster-body Colby Droit that had been built for the governor of Halcombe, China, and what the well-dressed man is to avoid. I knew about panel drawing-rooms, could recognize a Chinese rug on sight, 
and was familiar with the names of leading gift shops, tea rooms, and real estate dealers all over the country, and if that isn't the highest degree of modern American culture, I don't know what is. This day, however, it was the moving picture papers that got to me. I read them in a new light, and figured how I would look among them myself. I got to dreaming over them so deep that I was almost scared to death when Pop come in, banging the door and wanting to know where was dinner. That brought me down to earth all right. I flew back to the house, and over the stove and the boiled dinner which I had simmering on the back of it, my stock took an awful slump. This was brought about by Pop. During the meal he was just as cheerful and charming as ever, but his first words as I helped him to cabbage kind of took all the pep out of me. End of chapter 3